Have you ever had one of those days out slurping some cola from below the surface of Mars when, out of nowhere, NASA comes and kidnaps your entire family? No? Will ever wonder what it would be like? Join disturbing Google-eyed alien Mac as he product places his shapely little booty around California, befriending a young disabled boy with a death wish and eventually has a sick dance party at a totally real McDonald's. Was E.T. a little too mainstream for you? Real cinephiles know the best alien child friendship adventure is Stuart Raffles, Mac, and me. Welcome to Invalid Culture, a podcast dedicated to excavating the strangest and most baffling representations of disability in popular culture. Unlike other podcasts that review films you've probably heard of, Invalid Culture is all about the abyss of pop culture adjacent media that just never quite broke through because, well, they're just awful. I'm your host, Erica, and as always, I'm joined today by my co-host, Jeff. How you doing, Erica? Oh, I am good. I am so ready to get going on this one. Are you regretting doing this podcast yet? It's episode three. How are you feeling? Oh, I am I am more committed than ever. And I, I mean that in all possible interpretations of the word. So this is a very special episode of Invalid Culture because this film comes to us not just from the realms of popular culture, but also from Erica's past. Erica, what can you tell us about your childhood and the film Mac and Me? All right. Well, I wasn't aware, I think, until you brought up the possibility of doing an episode on Mac and Me that people knew about this film. It's one of those films that I associate with my childhood. I mean, I remember E.T., but Mac and Me was something, it was something else. I remember the purple box. I remember the uh, V-shaped whistle amplification that the aliens do with their hands. I remember, I remember the, the, um, the windmills, there are windmills. And I think, you know, I, I live in a, I come from a geographic area in which windmills became very popular uh, in the last few years. And as I saw those windmills come up, I was reminded of my childhood and this film, um, this film about an alien. And that's all really all I had to go with. I remembered the windmills. I remembered the alien. I did not remember that the main character used a wheelchair. So you wouldn't say that this film inceptioned you into becoming a disability studies professor? I mean, I'm rethinking everything now. Of it course. is it, it's possible that actually, you know, my my life path was altered by my childhood love for this film that I now understand is a bit of a cult, cult classic. A divisive. We'll say it's a divisive film mm. for sure. Lovers and haters both. The film we're going to be talking about today is, of course, the 1980s classic, Mac and Me. If you want to know what the movie Mac and Me is about, basically watch the movie E.T. And then imagine if E.T. was placed in a microwave and what came out was the movie Mac and Me. <laughs> Mac and Me essentially tells the story of a young boy moving from the rough and tumble world of Illinois to greener pastures, or I guess desert pastures of California. Uh, our main character, Eric, arrives in California only to discover that an alien from another planet 
has arrived in his town. They then become friends, uh, go through some hijinks, and eventually uh, our alien friend Mac is reunited with his parents. All, of course, under the watchful gaze of the government who is trying to capture this alien, uh, perhaps to send them back home. Is this text an immigration text? I would say yes, <laughs> definitely it is, because it ends with our alien friends being naturalized as American citizens at what is perhaps the strangest citizenship ceremony I have ever seen. Is that a pretty accurate description, would you say, of the film? Yeah, I mean, a few details here and there, but we're gonna fill those in as we get going. So why did we decide to do this film? I mean, obviously there's a boy in a wheelchair, but why this film? I mean, for me personally, it was really about revisiting my, my childhood and just the disbelief that, uh, that this was a disability film. This film also has some pop culture credentials, perhaps, that goes beyond what we intended for Invalid Culture. We're breaking the rules a little bit. You may actually recognize a scene from this film, even if you have not seen it, because an actor by the name of Paul Rudd for years has been using an infamous scene from this film every time he goes on Conan. Let's hear actually a quick little clip explaining what the world is going on with Paul Rudd and Mac and me. I never really imagined 20 years ago yeah. that here we would be. Yeah. Well, and someone obviously on the internet put together, they didn't even do all of them. No. But you can see, I mean, you don't age, but you see me, <laughs> you see me go from like a, here's Paul Rudd, to like, you know, just <laughs> rotting pumpkin head. And you see it happen over a period of years and it's absolutely stunning. Well. It's this crazy performance art <laughs> oh. that lasts forever. Oh. I just remember the very first time thinking, it's so artificial to come on and sell your wares and show a clip from your movie, and what if I just show a clip from another movie? Right, right. We've never uh, talked about this, really, but, um, but uh, I thought, what if I show a clip from this movie that I saw a long time ago? <laughs> that is just really strange, and there's one scene in particular, but I was, I was kind of uh, waffling because there is another movie that I was obsessed with at the time that was equally like, who was this made for? Yeah, yeah. Uh, called Baby Geniuses. Baby Geniuses, yeah. does anyone know Baby? Oh, so this okay. film essentially is known for being bizarre, strange, over the top, ridiculous. And has had this life that I think has been extended beyond the original release as essentially a joke for an absurd film. But as we will find out, I think, there's more than perhaps meets the eye when it comes to representations of disability in this film. Perhaps it, disability is the only thing that's not ridiculous in this film. So where does this film come from? Well, it was written and directed by Stuart Raffle and Steve Feek. And Stuart Raffle, you may recognize, uh, he has done some movies, things like uh, Ice Pirates was one of his, uh, also was a big animal tamer and wrangler through many Hollywood films, and then eventually got into the writing and directing. As we watched this film, unlike other films on Invalid Culture, we decided to watch it with the commentary enabled. Uh, most of the films we watch don't have commentary. This film, however, was released as a uh, collector's edition Blu-ray. 
yes, we watched this in 1080p as God intended. And we listened to the audio commentary and it was actually really informative. And everything that we learned here is uh, verified in a Thrillist.com article. So definitely know that this is legitimate information we are working with here. So the, the director, Stuart Raffel, really begins the audio commentary by explaining that this film was created in a rush. Uh, there, it, I believe he said five weeks. Yeah. Five weeks in total, he talks about how they were developing the costumes for the alien while writing the script with actors already on payroll and uh, we're kind of under direction to just get her done. Why the rush? Unclear. We also learned that the producer, RJ Lewis, had spent several years negotiating brand rights with McDonald's. Uh, and so this film came about presumably at the, you know, the, the deal was passed. We went into production a little more on why the deal was passed. So Lewis had a, a history with the Ronald McDonald charity and actually wanted to create this film in order to raise funds for the charity, for the Ronald McDonald charity. And so something that we, you can't help but notice when watching the film that there is some brand placement, product placement, like next level going on in this film. You know, riding on the, the coattails of E.T., there's some Reese's Pieces. Here we've got Coke, we've got McDonald's. We questioned whether maybe Porsche was involved. Uh, perhaps also Quickie Wheelchair brand, although unconfirmed on the latter couple. But really what we learned in this audio commentary right off the bat was that this film was created to raise money for the Ronald McDonald charity. Yeah, and a lot of investment financially by McDonald's to get this made. Uh, McDonald's was, was actually quite involved in some ways with the production of this film. But on the other hand, as we learned in the audio commentary, McDonald's didn't actually seem to have a whole lot of say about what happened. And this wasn't quite like uh, other product placements where the, you know, the brand comes in and says, well, we want to be represented in these kind of ways. With the duration or the speed at which it was produced, it sounds kind of like they just got this money and made something. Because I would really wonder, I would love to know what did McDonald's think about this film after it came out? Were they happy with their investment? I don't exactly know. But let's talk more about the Ron McDonald charity a little bit later, because I have some theories about what might be happening. But let's instead look at some critical response, because we are not the only ones who have opinions about this film. So Erica, what did some of the major critics have to say when Macamere was released in, I believe, 1988? Well, let's start with a Richard Harrington from the Washington Post who said, So why is it so hard to like this film? Having it seen done much better by Spielberg doesn't help, of course. <laughs> right. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, I think it was Richard Harrington as well that mentions just casually, that R.J. Lewis, the producer of the film, it turns out that they were an account executive for an ad firm that handled McDonald's. So R.J. Lewis had a past relationship as an ad man for McDonald's. And Richard just wanted us to know, just throwing it out there. Now, what else did we find? 
Well, we've got Stephen Ray from the Philadelphia Inquirer who says, Everything about Mac and me, not least the fact that it is fairly well made and involving, smacks of crass calculation. The filmmakers even have the gold in the movie's part and shot to announce a sequel. <laughs> yes, that's right. The film ends with a still and a cartoon text for unknown reasons announcing, what is it? See you soon. We will be back. We'll be back. We'll be back. Hey, didn't another picky a movie pick that up another time? That will yeah, be back. I believe so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm still waiting for Mac and me to be back frankly you know i i have a i have a pet theory that it's coming if honestly if any of our listeners are interested we will start a gofundme and we will film mac and me too should we just start if you want it (laughs) if you want it we will do it i am fully committed because apparently copyright doesn't matter apparently you can just tell whatever story you want you know, E.T., hmm, E.T.-ish. So next we had uh, Chris Defoe from the Globe and Mail. While worse films have no doubt touched the heart of the general public, Mac and Me is not only crass, it's boring and insulting to children's intelligences. And I want to say, I kind of took issue with this. <laughs> Funny that we hear <laughs> crass again. Um, yep. But I just I took issue with this a little bit because watching this film, this is actually a film that is almost entirely showcasing children. Um, and I think children's intelligence, specifically their autonomy, this is, we hardly see, the adults in this film are, are secondary roles. This is a film that is led by children and an alien. It really does seem to be more about children living as this sort of agentic operators. And I think it really stood out to me in the commentary when they're talking about how he realized that children want to see themselves on screen. Um, I don't feel like this movie is trying to trick children. I think it's trying to be fun and funny. And I would argue that it fails miserably (laughs) at doing that. 100% fails. But I don't think they're trying to trick us. I don't think. No, I don't think so either. And uh, I, I really, I think that's a really astute observation about um, children wanting to see themselves represented and maybe not unrelated to the fact that we have here our first disabled actor in a disabled role. Uh, maybe yeah. maybe this team, maybe, you know, maybe uh, film production wasn't their forte. It was just the medium. Yeah, R.J. Lewis allegedly had always wanted to do a film starring a disabled actor um, playing themselves. And in that way, this film is perhaps actually quite progressive. I think one of my favorite critiques of this film, however, came from Juan Carlos Cotto from the Miami Herald, who said, quote, His pace is quick, and the numerous chase scenes make for good fun, for sheer thrills. Mac beats Pippi and Pee-wee. Claws down. Uh, Sorry, just for clarification, do we know who or what Pippi and Pee-wee are? This is definitely referencing Pee-wee Herman and Pippi Longstocking. And I would imagine anyone listening to this who have seen either of those films is deeply concerned about Mm -hmm. the mental state of Juan Carlos Cotto. I don't know how anyone can argue that this horrifying monstrosity of an alien 
is better than Pippi Longstocking or Pee Wee Herman. I mean, he might be wrong. He might be, we could debate that, but I do think he's probably nailed the class, the class sure. that belongs in. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Maybe this actually maybe does make more sense alongside like a Pippi Longstocking or a Pee Wee Herman. That actually might be a better place to put it. Whereas like E.T. is like, oh, I, don't know, I, was, I was about to say high film and I apologize for that. But I mean, Spielberg is in a completely different uh, film production category, I would argue. That maybe makes some sense. But the fact that it beats it, claws down? Mm. Juan Carlos Coto, what did they have on you? Did they have your family? Does Tell Juan us. Carlos Coto also work for McDonald's? <laughs> Everyone works for McDonald's. But of course, film critics are not the only ones that have important opinions. In fact, some of the best opinions about movies, in my humblest of opinions, can be found within the Amazon review categories. So we have curated some of our favorite Amazon reviews of Mac and me. And we start with a great one. This one comes to us from Sheldon, five stars titled, okay, and the text is, okay. Sheldon believes, eh, it's okay. Five yes, stars. Five stars. <laughs> five stars, it's okay. So S.A. Hansen, another five star, titled a little more descriptively, look for the good, not the bad. With the text, I see nearly everyone dislikes this film. Everyone either gives it one or no stars. Video Movie Guide 2000 gave it the turkey. After I got it, I read the positive and negative reviews. And now I'm glad I was able to enjoy. Yes, it is a pale clone of E.T., but that is what makes it all the more better. Nothing is better than E.T., but this is right next to it. Perhaps there won't be a sequel because of how poorly it did with the box office, but it definitely didn't deserve worst picture. I love that they say maybe a sequel won't happen, like 30 years after this was released. <laughs> so this is a good one. I like this one for a lot of reasons. This is from our friend Brian, five stars, titled Intergalactic Good Times, ellipses. The text is, quote, Mac and Me is one of Hollywood's most overlooked pieces of classic science fiction. Fun for the whole family, Mac and Me will take your heart from the introduction of the film's protagonist, a cute little extraterrestrial. Don't jump to any conclusions. This is no E.T. knockoff. Mac has a mind of his own. After a fabulously choreographed scene at McDonald's, Mac and his handicapped friend, bracket me, bracket, get into some hefty trouble with the law. Excellent pyrotechnics and special effects. A true classic. Is it possible that this review was written on Amazon in 1989? I think it's, I think there was like, this was probably shouted out on a CB radio when the <laughs> film came out. And it's just been captured and curated for us here. I love how it like, it equal parts defends the movie and then it, uh, it plays up other parts and then minimizes others. So for instance, I love the implication that unlike E.T., Mac is an agentic free thinker. Like E.T. is apparently like a conformist, 
like slave to the system, unlike Mac, who thinks for himself. Okay, but Brian also claims that it's cute. And I, I'm not sure I can agree with that. <laughs> that is also an extreme, an extreme. I mean, the first time I saw this film, uh, I was I was old. I was an adult. And I was worried about nightmares after I saw this for the first time. The alien to me is terrifying. All of them are very disturbing, I would argue. Yeah, it is not, I would not, cute and cuddly is not the vibe I get from Mac. Uh, which I think Mac is actually said to be an abbreviation for, or uh, an acronym for mysterious alien creature. Uh, I think this was a rip on uh, Elf, perhaps. Oh, I see. I, I believe. See. I believe. I also love the statement that, quote, they get into, quote, hefty trouble with the law, uh, which is, of course, an abbreviation for Eric will be shot by the police by the end of this movie. <laughs> He'll be shot and killed by a police officer. Depending on which country you watch the film in. Correct. We'll talk about that more in a moment. All right. Up next, we've got Jason Nickert. Five stars titled Jay's Review on a Childhood Classic. See, Jay and I were coming from the same place. So Jay had to say, this movie was my all-time favorite movie when I was growing up. From the first time I watched it on the old TMN movie network, this movie is a great movie with a lot of fun attached to it. It was and always will be a cult classic to me. It helped me grow up and it's tremendous grasp of a boy who falls in love for a being greater than man and shows a compassion that is lacking our day and age. I rate this movie an easy 10, but if since I can only go to five, I will have to settle for that. There is a lot to unpack here. Mm. Is this a romance movie? Hmm. I mean, that was not my initial read, but... Do Mac and Eric hook up? I mean, no, they, we don't, we definitely don't see that happen. <laughs> I, I did not have the sense that it happened either. You know, I mean, maybe worthy of mention, there is a certain, uh, there is a caring relationship, certainly, that develops definitely. between them. Uh, I think we see them both extend care and support towards each other. If you were watching What's Eating Gilbert Grape, would you say that he fell in love with Gilbert Grape? No, no. This is it's a the very... falls in love that's very, uh, very strange to me. Yep, yep. You're, I mean, what is love? I also want to know, is Mac genuinely a being greater than man? See, yeah, I, I mean, I was on board with most of this review. <laughs> but that one I'm not so sure about. Certainly, certainly portrayed as an other. Uh, an other being. Yeah. Um, greater. I mean, hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know about that. So his powers are essentially, he's able to get sucked into things. He essentially has like a completely malleable body. Like he can fit into very small spaces. He, he doesn't rely a, on water. Right, he lives on Coca-Cola. I don't know if that makes him better. I'm not sure. We also got a five-star review from Kim. This one was titled, Great Movie. And it says, quote, I thought it was a good movie. Did you know that the kid in the wheelchair wasn't just acting in the wheelchair? That was actually his. He has spina bifida, and he did all his own stunts, like the water scene where he falls off the cliff. Now, this is a good review. I brought this quote on the show because... It straight up lies to us in its justification of the film. The actor 
does have spina bifida. The actor was using his own wheelchair. However, he did not do almost any of the stunts, including he did not do the stunt where he falls off a cliff and into the water. That was definitely not him. And it is stated repeatedly in the commentary of the film that they were very afraid of killing this child throughout the film. They were really worried that they were going to kill him with the stunts, and that's why they use stunt doubles. It sounds like very heavily. So Kim, the one thing you tried to sell us on, it wasn't true. Last up, and this is probably my favorite, and I would say the most accurate of all of the reviews. So Dylan Kelly gave us a very unforgiving one-star review titled Truly Terrible with the slightly more generous text, God awful, loved every minute. So I'm just going to say, I think that actually pretty well sums it up for me. How about you, Jeff? It's so perfect. So I think we we pretty much sum up the reviews there. Shall we get into uh, a little bit of a deeper analysis of, of what happened here? I'm so sorry that you have to have a body. So very sorry that you have to have a body. Oh, yeah. All right, so let's get started. Some general impressions on the film. I mean, clearly we are looking at a low budget. Well, I think if we look at the numbers, it wasn't exactly a low budget. <laughs> it was not a low budget film. <laughs> there was a lot of money, but it looks like a straight to DVD film. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we've got what looks like a low budget film. I think that what I want to say first and foremost is I am, I was, I, I remain just floored what an excellent disability representation this is. I don't think we started this film knowing that we were looking at an actual disabled actor. I believe that this was something that we started to pick up on as we watched. Did you know going in? I fully expected that this thing was gonna be a gong show. I figured that this was going to be an absolute, like just paint by color or paint by number, just all the worst stuff. And as we were watching this film, I had this like dark sneaking suspicion that this actually might be one of the best representations of disability that we're going to see. It might be a completely unwatchable movie, but it actually may have gotten disability right. And that's shocking considered all of the other problems within this film. (laughs) Right. And so, I I mean, watching this, especially after the last couple of films that we, you know, really, really, I think, railed for their their, uh, unfortunate acting disability, it was very immediately evident that the actor was not sort of imagining disability and acting this what what an able-bodied actor might imagine spina spina bifida or, I mean, we don't... very unique among this film. I don't think that his diagnosis is ever mentioned. I don't think, except for one one incident we'll get back to, he's really not medicalized. There's no dwelling on his leaky body. Um, There are no kind of awkward and inconsistent arm, hand, leg movements. Uh, It's just just a kid using a chair. And uh, that's not even, I mean, it's not even that. It's just a kid who happens to, to be using a chair. It's never the focus. It's never the focal point. And that is just, that is rare. Yeah, I don't know how they got this so right, considering everything else. Like, 
I think it is important for us to clarify here. This film is terrible. It is a terrible film. But somehow, within this, like, pile of excrement, this, like, beautiful flower of representation emerged. And that is shocking. Yeah, I mean, I think you you threw out the hypothesis that because the film was strewn together so quickly, maybe they just didn't have time to overthink the disability representation. I think that might be it. Like, I feel like they didn't even think about disability because they didn't have time. Like, we hear in the commentary that at times they were literally, like, writing stuff and then, like, looking for places to film the next scene and finding these locations like the night before and then just like go in there the next day to shoot the scene. I wonder if when you don't have a time to think about the story and you're literally just shooting one scene after another, then it just, it becomes like a non-factor. Like they were like, well, we don't have the time or the capacity to actually engage with any of this stuff because we're trying to film a movie in like a month and a half. And I think a lot of the stuff in this film is reflective of that philosophy. It's like, well, we're not going to think of like an original plot line. We don't have time for that. So we're just going to take parts of E.T. and then put it in there. We're going to take parts of um, Back to the Future and we're going to put it in there. We're basically just going to be like, oh, do you like Spielberg? We're going to like take a bunch of stuff from his films. We're going to jam it together and we're just going to get this thing out the door. Like that's what our plan is. Well, and that, that really squares with the intent for this film to essentially raise money for a charity. Like it wasn't about, you know, reinventing cinema. It was about how do we use the medium to meet our, our end. Um, and I, I think two things related to that, that I think sort of played out. We heard on the commentary, um, the director say, you know, we really had to take, we really had to take Jade's lead because, you know, we imagined a scene would go one way and then we got there and, uh, Jade sort of told us it needed to go another way. And so that we saw in another film, I think it was Miracle in Lane 2 that had an on-site wheelchair consultant. Yes. Um, and, you know, and so, I mean, the director of this film in the commentary acknowledged how much they learned about disability and just sort of the, the mundaneness of living with disability through working with Jade on the film. Now, I'm sorry. Can we talk about the cliff scene? I think we need to talk about it. It is the elephant in the room. Mm. For those of you who have not seen the film yet, Eric has decided it is finally time to capture this alien. He's been sort of pursuing it. There's been weird things happening in his house. And he follows the alien out of his house, ends up on a cliff, which his wheelchair then runs down. He tries to put on the brakes. The brakes snap off. And his wheelchair then launches off the cliff he falls for a long time into this water below, at which point he begins to drown. And it is at this point that Mac finally reveals himself, swims out into the water, and somehow rescues this man or child, uh, pulls him to the shore. Uh, the next time we will see Eric, he's now in, uh, in his bedroom being consulted by doctors. What stood out for you in the cliff scene, Erica? I mean, there's the shock, certainly. Like, wh who who thought to launch the wheelchair kid off a cliff? Why? <laughs> right. Why was that? Why? Where? Where did that come from? The stakes have never been higher. 
Right. I mean, it seemed in one sense, it seemed kind of realistic because I don't think we've mentioned that the family had just moved into a new home. So, you know, like a kid out exploring, it's not unrealistic. It's not like that sort of trope that we're used to seeing where, uh, you know, a, a blind character is sort of feeling around for things in their own home that they most likely know where to find them, right? It's, yeah. it's not that kind of thing. It's not unrealistic that he, um, you know, would slip down a, I don't know what to call it, a cliff. Ravine, cliffside, <laughs> yeah. And lose control. Did that seem realistic to you? Yes and no. The way he reacted to it is what actually got me. And it's interesting because as we found out, uh, unlike what Kim the liar would try and tell us. Jade, the actor, had nothing really to do with this. It was a stunt bubble that was used, which I think is also incredible because I believe it looks pretty obvious that there is not a person in this wheelchair. Allegedly, it is a person. I am not super convinced on that. But one thing that I think that doesn't speak to the reality uh, of manual wheelchairs, I don't know many people that go to the brakes to try and stop themselves from moving. But the brake, when I was in a manual wheelchair, those brakes are rickety, like they don't really work. And it's really more so for like when you're doing a transfer, when you're sitting still, right? You're like, I'm, I've come to a stop and I'm gonna put this on so that I don't like roll down a, a gradual incline. At, like when I was in a manual wheelchair, the gun instinct was you just grab the wheels. Like you just full on grab the wheel with your hands. And at the time, if you're going at the speed that your brake will snap off, (laughs) you are well beyond the point, I think, of stopping the chair. And I think you would just bail out. Like I think you would just jump out of the chair. So I think that's like, I think that was a little bit obviously kind of ridiculous. And it's interesting that in the scene that doesn't use Eric, we see a kind of a different use of the wheelchair. Uh, that maybe doesn't exactly resonate. I really am surprised that they basically tried to kill him off this early in the movie. Like that was like a full blown, he almost died. Yeah, I mean, he almost died and the the alien quickly came to his rescue. So, I mean, that's interesting. That's an interesting way to, to cue our first real meeting with the alien. Is there something to that? I wonder too, like, how did the alien know that he was drowning? Like, how does this child alien from a different planet that is ostensibly a desert in which they use straws to suck coke out of, how was the alien like, oh, he's drowning, he breathes air, I need to get down in there and pull him out? I also want to know, after the scene is done, so once he hits the water, the actor is separated from the wheelchair. And so when he is saved, he's like dragged to the uh, side of the water by Mac, which again, I just want to point out as well, we do see Jade uh, with his arms exposed in this film. And this kid was ripped because he was like borderline Paralympian. He was doing like wheelchair races at the time. I have a hard time imagining that he didn't have the physical capacity to swim. But anyways... We see him get pulled out of the water. The next time we see him, he's in his bed, but his wheelchair is there. Who got his wheelchair from the bottom of the lake? Did Mac go back? Because after he pushes the the boy to the to the side of the water, he then goes back underwater. Like Mac goes back down. Is he going down to get the wheelchair? And how was he like, 
this is like a six or seven thousand dollar wheelchair i need to go get that for this kid the curious thing is that we see eric flailing in the water in a way that suggests there is not a chair pulling him under the water but then we see him lifted out of the water on the chair but yeah the question remains how did he get from the bottom of this valley back up to uh his home on the cliff Hmm. yeah there's there's fire like there's fire people there there are like multiple fire trucks and multiple cop cars and i feel like that is also a real over response to a kid who was ostensibly he was fine like there's no indication that this child suffered any sort of injury from what he definitely should have probably died from and see, this is where we see some some good representation that I don't think we can probably credit to Eric, right? Because decisions were made around Eric with Eric slash actor Jade. Decisions were made not to sort of portray his uh, helplessness or his neediness by showing anyone carrying him, you know, or dragging him or how, however it was that he he got out of this situation. That wasn't shown. We didn't sort of dwell on his, you know, the his fragility. This thing happened and he was so fragile already that he just crumbled to pieces. Not at all. I mean, we did see um, the next scene. We, we do see him uh, next in bed. But uh, other than that, we don't we don't go. Those tropes weren't sort of milked the way that we've seen them in other films. Also, can we talk about their van? Because I do not understand how Eric, character Eric, how he is put inside this Volkswagen van. I don't understand what the heck is going on. Okay, so we see throughout the film, Eric is presented in several different configurations within this this old school Volkswagen van. We see one scene in which his older brother, Michael, like grabs his wheelchair and carries the wheelchair and Eric out of the van. So there's not like a ramp or a power lift or anything. There don't appear to be like tie down straps. Sometimes he is like basically between the front seats. Other times he's like way in the back of this van. He is like all over the place. And it feels like we hear on the commentary that there was like a whole lot of drama around filming within the van. And the problem was not Eric himself. It was that they, they needed a bunch of puppeteers also in the van with all the film crew and all the film equipment. And that there just wasn't enough room. And so I think Eric was just getting sort of pushed around into different spots of the van in order to make it fit. But the van stuff was wild to me because there was just no consistency in how this boy was transported. Yeah, so I looked into this because I was curious you know, how is the wheelchair getting into the van for one? And actually it turns out that the, as in character, Eric even explains to someone else, um, you know, the question comes up, well, how, 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 how do you get in the car? And they say, oh, well, I'll just, I can just hop in my wheelchair and sit in the back. So he explains that himself. Um, their van curiously does not have a ramp or a lift of any sort on it. And we never see him navigating that but i, I that the, the timing the the actual year this film was 1988 yeah and so um looking into it it turns out uh, it was sort of in the mid 70s that uh the converted van 
was first sort of being explored. And in, I think it was 87 or 88, actually, uh, that that vans really started to be adapted. So it, it, it's very likely that they wouldn't have actually had any concept of an adapted van. It's possible that someone in the production might have seen one or known something about them. Um, but it might actually be that we were just in a um, sort of in, a, in, a, in an era of, of makeshift accessibility for automobiles. It's fascinating because in some ways, again, perhaps not even intentionally, this movie made the right choice. Because I think often when disabled characters are brought in, there's this weird pressure, like they're trying to figure out, well, how would someone in a wheelchair use a van? And then, well, they didn't have the internet really in 1988, but they would have like called and been like, well, what's out there? And what you end up finding is that often people with disabilities in films are using like the top of the line equipment that no one else actually has access to. Um, you know, like different drummer, they're using a piss tube, which no one else had access to that technology, uh, nor have they ever gotten access to it. And, and so it, it's interesting because again, by perhaps not even intentionally, I think they probably did show the reality of using a wheelchair where they're like, ah, oh, let's just get this, this Volkswagen bus thing and take out the middle seat and we'll just sort of jam the chair in there because that's kind of what families were doing at the time. Mac and me nails it once again. Now, while there were lots of good things, I think, in this film, there were some interesting tropes that we noticed, things that we see a lot in disability film. One of the tropes, I don't have a lot to say about it, but I do want to flag it right off the bat, is that similar to Miracle in Lane 2, within this film, uh, Eric's brother, Michael, we go into his room at one point and discover that he has tons of like sport medals. And so once again, we have this idea of the disabled child and their sibling being hyper-performative, uh, that Michael is apparently very physically um, successful. I don't believe we really see any medals in, in Eric's room. It didn't stand out anyway. He mostly had toys. Well, and what's interesting about that, we learned on the commentary that Jade was actually a high-performing athlete. Yeah. Uh, so this, was, <laughs> this was very much one of those gifts from the imagination of the writers, not from reality. It's funny, too, because sport is always in the background of this film, but never actually does become in the center. Within both of the boys' bedrooms, we see this like cornucopia of Chicago sports team references. There's posters to the Chicago Bears. There's posters of the Cubbies. There's all this sort of reference to like Chicago sports. In the infamous uh, dance scene in the McDonald's, there are people in full-blown football uniforms, but only like two or three of them. Not a team, just like a couple of guys going to McDonald's after the game. Why is that? I mean, is that just a, is it an 80s sort of stereotype, stereotype of the culture at the time? Like we, I think in the dance scene, we see, you know, there are the, the street performers, there are the athletes, there are, I think some ballet There's dancers. ballerinas. Yeah, okay. I think it, maybe it's, I, I wonder if this was a way of signifying, like reminding us that they also are fish out of water. Like the alien, obviously, Mac is a fish out of water, but so too is Eric and Michael because they're from Chicago. 
and they're not from California. And that division of like Illinois and Chicago and California being different places with different ideas about the world is something that comes up a couple of times. Like Erica and Michael are also kind of immigrants into this like California world. And so I wonder if the sports teams were just like an easy way to be like, don't forget, they're not from California. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to come back to this one, actually. But let's go first to the, you know, the other trope I think we saw, even though briefly, was, you know, wh why Eric was not injured by his fall off the cliff. Why do we why do we next frame see him in bed with a doctor? I love it. I like this is such a fascinating trope to me that when characters are like hurt or sick, we symbolize it by putting them in bed. I mean, like this kid just like fell off a cliff and into the water. Is his first instinct to be like, I should go lay down? Or is it more this like iconic image of like the doctor at the bedside caring for the patient? It called to mind for me um, the Frankie Muniz character in Miracle in Lane 2, how he was always about to burst. Right. right? 911 was on speed dial because three clicks was too many. You had to get medical help there so quickly. There's almost some remnant of that in the, the doctor, you know, get the doctor here quick. Most kids, we do, you know, we kind of monitor the bump on the head and see if it goes down before we call the doctor. But this is like sort of maybe some glimmer of that, you know, because disability is present, medic medicine is always, you know, just, just off scene. I wonder if this explains the overreaction from EMT as well. And this idea that he wasn't just hurt. It was a wheelchair kid that fell off a cliff, not just any kid. And so you need like multiple police cars. You need fire. You're going to have the doctors going to visit at home. And the doctor essentially gives him like a clean bill of health. And he just, all he does is he prescribes him a sedative. Is that like how all doctors operated in the 1980s? We might need to bring that back, if I'm being honest. Right. Just prescribe sedatives. Just, you know, opiate of the masses. <laughs> Maybe literal opium. I think this was a really, uh, like, it's such a, like, cliche. Uh, and I think it's funny, too, in watching this film from the 1980s and looking at where American healthcare is now, I think the idea of a general practitioner coming to your bedside, that period of healthcare in America is dead. Like there was no reference to like HMOs, who was gonna pay for this medical care. There was no reference to paying for the fix on his wheelchair or any, like there was no delay even in repairing the wheelchair. It was just like, well, of course we care for people when they're sick or hurt because that's what our culture believes in. And that's, um, that, that actually felt, really foreign watching this again in 2021 yeah was that is that a relic is it a fantasy i that's a good question maybe somewhere in the middle uh, i think that there was maybe this like this desire to believe of america as the best like this movie is very much about america right like it's about america being the best at sort of everything and so i think similarly this idea that like we provide the best health care that I think was really important back in the 80s in a way that now I think America, for whatever reason, has now been like, well, whatever. We might have great health care. Maybe we don't, but you got to pay. 
one way or another, you're going to pay. Which ironically is also the genesis of the film, right? Was that right. charity funding a charity? So yeah, I was going to ask, you know, was that when when did you know? I, I don't really know the the historical evolution of healthcare in America uh, from the bedside doctor to the you know hospital industrial complex. But uh, we're we're certainly looking at a film that was created to fund a charity that helps uh, families of children getting medical care. Now I want to flag this because we'll come back to it again. But I do want to point out why did he not end up in a Ronald McDonald house after this? Like that seems like such a clear synergy. Ooh. If the intention was to fund Ronald McDonald houses. So that's but, funny because I, I think, I mean, the, the thing about this film is that it is not actually a film about disability. It's a film about all America. It's a, right. It's a, it's a film mm -hmm. about, it's a film about another, but it's not the disabled other, despite there being a disabled character. It's really about the alien other who I think we, I think we already read into it some kind of a immigration uh, text before we heard the director call it an immigration text. Yes, absolutely. That is confirmed. Um, yeah, and so there's th that. That was just, I think, an unexpected trope for a a disability movie that's maybe not really a disability movie at all. I think in that vein, I like. I'd like to unpack a little bit here this idea of disability and the other. So as we saw in both of the previous movies, so in Miracle in Lane 2 and in Different Drummer, there's this idea that like disability is like bound to or drawn to the other. In this film, it is a disabled character who gets bound to an alien. So did Mac choose Eric or was Eric determined to befriend the alien because of his other status? It's a really good question. I mean, literally what we see, uh, there's sort of this big commotion early in the movie. It's a car crash and the alien is present and the alien is sort of meandering around the car crash. And what we next see is Eric at home and the alien has hitched a ride or followed them home, right? So literally what we see is that the alien chose Eric. Yeah, not just chose the car. There are many other cars. I will say in that car crash, there was a man who was straight up on fire during that scene. This movie, the stakes have never been higher. People were on fire in this multi-car pileup caused by the alien. But he does. He, he looks in the window, he jumps in. And I think similarly, Eric and his family do not seem to be phased really at all that there is now this terrifying alien wandering around and destroying their house. <laughs> destroying their house, being pursued by the FBI, right? They've got cars, they've got on foot officers, they are chasing this alien down. And like, because so at the, there's a brief moment of doubt. So like at first his family's like, no, there is no alien. And then they're like, oh shoot, there is an alien. Okay, well now there's an alien. I almost wonder if this is this notion that difference begets difference, that because they are living this different life with a son that has a disability, they're just suddenly kind of more accepting of difference as well. They're like, oh, well, we need to see 
the value in everyone, even if they look different or behave different or act different, they're like more accepting of that difference. And so at no point are they like, whoa, there are other intelligent species in this world that live on different planets. Yeah, so I don't, I think the, the fascinating part of this for me is that I, I'm not convinced that this was an intentional part of the writing of the film. Like, I don't think that um, our friend who, who essentially bragged about launching the wheelchair off the cliff and the genius of that writing, I don't think that that same person wrote this um, deep sort of trope around the the other and the the openness that um you know living with around disability might might beget i i think that this is really one of those uh, special moments where we get a a very kind of subconscious trope written into the into the film and where this uh, this sort of bonding between others or openness compassion to others because of an othered existence but something else that I think I felt in, in this dynamic was that because disability was being portrayed as so just mundane, it was almost, I mean, the, the, the otherness of disability was, was really overshadowed by the otherness of the alien and, and almost not even, I mean, overshadowed in a sense, but also sort of humanized. Like I think in a lot of our, a lot of the films that we might consider, you know, whether they're <laughs> our preferred offbeat representations or the mainstream representations, we see disability treated as its own. I mean, it is it is sort of the, the object that carries the film. It's the object that is analyzed and picked apart in the film. And disability wasn't objectified in that way here. And because Mac is clearly not human, it almost creates, like it almost bolsters the humanity of the disabled character. Yeah, like... Mac becomes the obvious other and also the problem to be solved, which then allows Eric to A, not be a problem, and B, to be actually in closer proximity to the other human characters and therefore marked as a human character. Yeah, and I one, I mean, I don't know if this is a if this is if this is a stretch to observe, but noticing that um Eric cares for Mac in a in in a in an almost parental in a kind of parental custodial kind of way motherly yeah right like motherly way leaned over himself sort of leaned over at the bedside holding up his head and feeding him the coca-cola that he needs to survive yeah I was disturbed by that scene (laughs) I just like I was waiting for the breastfeeding to happen in that moment like he's like cradling his head and it's like have some bitty, my friend. Maybe we're really getting deep into the subconscious here. Is Eric Mac's mother an interesting question? Mm. But I honestly do not know of many other films in which the disabled character is a provider of care. I mean, the one that pops into my mind immediately, and I hate that I'm going to say this, uh, would be I Am Sam. Um, there is like a, it's a two-way care relationship, but he does provide care for his daughter. But Eric is definitely a provider of care throughout this film. And also the advocate, like he is literally the voice for for Mac. Who doesn't speak just as, you know, if you haven't gotten around to watching the film yet, Mac does not 
communicate uh, using verbal language. No, and also does communicate in extremely abstract hints. So for instance, when he wants to say, my family is by the windmills, he puts a flower in a straw. And that moment, like when, when Eric is like, oh, the windmills, that's what he's referring to. I'm like, I would have never made that connection. Mac would have never reconnected with his family if I was Eric. Does that, I mean, is that giving Eric a bit of that sort of superhuman? Like, does he, is he then, you know, we often see that either lesser or greater than human is. He seems to have some sort of insight. But again, I wonder if that is not the nature that Eric has like a unique ability. And I don't even necessarily think it's an idea that like Mac maybe has like a telepathic ability. So he's sort of actually putting the ideas maybe into Eric. I don't think that's what's happening either. I think they were like, we got to get this thing done in 90 minutes. So we're just going to like throw this stuff out there and, and Eric will just figure it out and it'll be fine. It's a movie by and for the children. Also, if you're an American, you should be ashamed of your government in this film because the fact that they're not able to capture these aliens is a true indictment about the incompetence of law enforcement and not the only indictment of law enforcement within this film. Yeah, so, I mean, our, our ending scene, you've already kind of thrown out the spoiler that our protagonist is shot at, at least, by the police. So we have the, the Mac is reunited with his parents and sibling. They enter a grocery store and essentially, I mean, it all just breaks loose at that point. The police are there. I mean, presumably they've been called to deal with the aliens in the supermarket. How does the fire start? From the shooting, because there's oh, a gas station. And the gas station. Okay, okay, yeah. So, I mean, we have uh, not only a, a store full of people, but we have Eric rushing in to try and help them while the police continue to shoot at the aliens and now at Eric. We learn that in an alternate ending, not the one that we see, Eric is actually shot by police, which is, of course, leading up to his being brought back to life by the aliens. How? Uh, something that looks a bit like a, the, the seance that we practiced in, like, you know, early 90s. Did it come from, when, when was the craft made? <laughs> anyway, yeah. it's clearly another, another, uh, Precious time capsule. But yeah, the cops are just shooting, they shoot the kids. So in our in our American version, um, it's been edited so that we don't actually see that happen. Um, we see a sort of Eric rush to, to save his friends and the explosion. And he's uh, sort of presumably affected by the explosion. Um, but, uh, but the police were indeed shooting um, openly at the aliens. Uh, and everyone else in the vicinity who happened to be at a grocery store slash gas bar. My favorite part, I think, about so number one, if you have not watched the international, you can find it on YouTube, uh, and you can straight up watch the police shoot and kill a disabled child, uh, which is a bold stance for this film to take. Um, hilarious. But I love, so afterwards, 
Eric's mother is brought to the scene and she's rushing and there's like a police officer and he's like, one of the kids was shot. And she's like, which one? Which I think is also a hilarious thing. And she's not necessarily equally concerned based on what child has been gunned down. She's like, well, I love my one son more than the other. Uh, She's like, which one? And the cop is like, I don't know, but he uses a wheelchair. And then there's like, oh no, Eric. And she like runs over and then this sort of scene happens. It's, It's an interesting moment because I think there's some authenticity here where I think if a woman was like, oh, who got hurt? And the police were like, well, I don't know his name. I don't think they'd be like, oh, I don't know. He was wearing like a Patagonia jacket uh, or like, oh, he had like blonde hair. It's like the wheelchair is definitely going to be the defining moment. And in fact, this is like the only time really, one of the rare times that he is defined by his disability. But I think it was a really authentic moment. Like I think that's exactly what would happen. I fully agree. It's like, oh, shoot. We killed the wheelchair one. Never mind that the mom was helicoptered in when they didn't even know who had been shot. Yeah, they knew she was related in some way. Uh, I don't know where this helicopter got her from. I guess maybe like the the Sears seat. So the mom works at Sears and they're, they have a little run through at Sears. But I think that was like a ways earlier. So I don't, I don't know that they necessarily would have known that they were connected, but the mom had to be there. And the child is saved. And I hate that. I wanted this movie to have the courage to kill the boy in a wheelchair. I just want to say different drummers. We also had a death and a revival. Yeah, the return. Yeah. yeah. Now that was more of a biblical revival, mm-hmm. but the table kid comes back. And I think we all knew it was going to happen. I think like the movie was really forecasting it. But I think the better question really is, and you've already posed this, why, why, why did he not end up in a Ronald McDonald house? Well, that's the thing. Like there are multiple times in which this child has almost died and the film is supposedly to the benefit of, I'm assuming Ronald McDonald house. They, they refer to it as the Ronald McDonald charity, uh, which uh, they do other things, but Ronald McDonald house is the main thing as far as I understand. And yet they don't do it. However, what we do see is that McDonald's is the place to rock. What the heck is happening in this organized dance scene? Okay, another point of great pride for the director in the commentary. This dance scene, we, we, and I thought, let's make it a musical. And so we made it a musical. Like, <laughs> what, what and why? I think that when, when we watched the movie the first time without the commentary, that, that was really the, the moment that, um, you know, is this a film or is this a really drawn out commercial for McDonald's? That, that McDonald's is like exactly what a marketer wants you to think it is like to go to a McDonald's. Like the place is pumping, bopping. The jams are on. There's like a dance battle happening in the parking lot. So this is another one of those, I think, like culturally relevant throwbacks. And maybe this is more relevant to my own childhood where I grew up, we had a McDonald's caboose. Mm -hmm. Were those universal or did we just happen to have one? I think it was really specific. I think they did different things at most of McDonald's. So like some of them had like the play house type things. 
uh, my McDonald's in Port Elgin um, had a terrifying like torture chamber in the basement. There was like a basement and it was horrifying. It smelled really bad. I went to one birthday there and I vowed that I would never return to this like dim lit, no window. What can only be described as BDSM torture chamber. Okay, this is fascinating. Um, maybe the topic for an entirely different podcast that is not our own. <laughs> <laughs> but in Chatham, where I grew up, we had a caboose and it was the place to have your McDonald's birthday party. So, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I think maybe this, maybe that was it. Maybe that was what the McDonald's execs wanted was we just, you do what you want with the film. We need to push the McDonald's birthday party as the place to be in the late 80s, early 90s for a birthday party. It is the coolest place. And it's a place where like the party never ends. Like the, the population within this McDonald's is radically diverse, like diverse in age, diverse in ethnicity, diverse in preferences and interests. Like there are, like you said earlier, ballerinas, there's football players, there's old people, there's young people. There's basically, I think every race is represented in this McDonald's and everyone's just intermixed. Ronald McDonald is literally there making puppets and like balloons for people. But like the people working at the front are happy and clapping. A dance sequence breaks out. Like this place is so much fun the most fun at no point do they ever reflect like the feces covered bathrooms uh or the seats that were literally designed so that you couldn't sit in them very long so that you got the heck out of the mcdonald's so they could bring in the next feeder to sell their burgers to it is it is oh and and the plants this mcdonald's is full of like lush greenery and I definitely do not remember there being any sort of plant in the McDonald's well, that I ever visited. I think this this answers our, our earlier question. That was, is this a relic or a fantasy? Clearly, it is 100% a fantasy. with a fantasy. A big time fantasy. And like one though that I'm kind of here for, like, can you imagine if there was a place where you could go to where all like creeds and religions and ages are all just together dancing and partying and celebrating? all the time and there's a clown there who will make you things i would go there i mean are you not describing disneyland i just wouldn't go there (laughs) (laughs) disney the mouse is furious that they didn't get in on the mac and me that'd be a great like theme park thing though right if you like come to this like this fantasy mcdonald's where the party never stops the other thing I will, I will say, if you want to see uh, some child actors dancing their bloody hearts out, this is the scene for you. Like the intensity with which these people are dancing, it is like toddlers and tiaras decades before it happens. And fun fact, Jennifer Aniston is in this scene. This is, I would argue without Mac and me, Friends never happens. Mm-mm. Yep. So if you're looking for a place to go where fun is happening all the time, it is time for you to go to the Rock and Roll McDonald's. Rock and Roll McDonald's! Rock and Roll McDonald's! Rock and Roll McDonald's! All right, so 
as we do, we have put this film through the ringer, but you know, some closing thoughts. To be fair, what were some things that you thought the film did well? I mean, full bloody marks for them casting an actor with a disability and actually listening to them, uh, actually embodying some of that advice. But maybe there were consequences to that. Well, I think what you're, you're, you're sort of teetering on saying, something that they did well really worked uh, to their disadvantage because they wanted this movie to raise money, right? But it did not raise money. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they did not, they did not produce a stereotypical tugging at your heartstrings trope. And, and that's where they were gonna get the money. So I think, you know, what the film did really well ultimately shot them in the foot. Absolutely. I wonder if they had leaned more into the disability tropes, if they may have gotten a bit more slack. I think one thing that's fascinating about the commentary uh, about this film and some of the things that the directors have talked about is the, you know, that one of the director and writer has is on record basically saying that he's like, we cast a disabled kid in this film. I can't believe people hate it. Uh, I believe he literally says that he thought America was more charitable than that, uh, as though that by doing this should just like gloss over or, or fix or remediate the flaws of the film, which like obviously is a ridiculous uh, thing to believe. I think it really speaks to this idea that disability can be used in films to cover over other problems within the film. And so without the crutch of disability, all of the problems were laid bare and it just couldn't survive. Ooh, that is, yep, that that pretty much captures it. Yep, and you know, maybe it didn't, uh, it didn't make the money that they wanted to make, but you know, maybe it, it really had more of an impact than, 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 they, than, they, than they could have foreseen. I would argue this film should be shown in, in schools that want to teach directors how to do disability. Yeah. And I that's a shocking thing. Uh, right. <laughs> again, once again, this is not to be shown for how to make a film or no. how to be successful. No. Or how to win awards. No. But, but it is absolutely a film that should be shown to teach people how to do disability right in a movie. It's painful to admit. Painful. It's painful, but it's just so simple. Like, I think what we see in this film is literally what everyone is asking for all the time. Can you please just cast a disabled actor in a disabled role? Can you even consider casting a disabled actor in a non-disabled role? Yep. Damn. Yep, it is going to cost more because you know what? Living with disability does cost more. That I think is another thing that really resonated with me in the commentary of this film was the way that they talked about, they acknowledged outright that they had to do things differently when they were filming with this, with this child who uses a wheelchair. They had to find a house that was accessible for the child to actually be able to get into to do the filming. But what was great about the way he talked about it was it wasn't like a, ah, oh, geez, we had all these problems and barriers and burdens. It wasn't that at all. Like it was more, he, he literally said, he was like, that was actually kind of the fun part 
was that we had all these problems and we had to find solutions for it. Uh, that I think is like exactly the mindset that you have to go into. And now maybe, you know, this commentary is recorded like decades after the film was done. Maybe, you know, in remembering it, it, he remembers it as more fun than it was at the time. But I think that's the mindset you should be going in with. So other than the representation piece of it, was there anything that you enjoyed about the movie, Erica? Mm. I know that's a tough question. That is a tough question. Um, I mean, I think I did. I did enjoy the some of the, the some of what we what we have been able to read into the um, the immigration metaphor. Some of the um, there's some interesting kind of gender stuff around the aliens too. Um, I mean, they the, the aliens, it's funny to see how we imagine aliens, right? Like what, what do we imagine that they're going to look like? Um, and like a very clear projection of some heteronormative stuff onto these aliens that are, they're sexless. Like we don't see, um, I think the the adult and child, child um, male and female bodies are, the bodies are the same. I think the only real difference we see are the, 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 the males have two bumps on their head and the females have four. So yeah. that was, I mean, I won't say it's something, I mean, I won't say it's something I liked. I'll say, I think for me, it felt like a bit of a missed opportunity, um, certainly a product of its time, but um, you know, it just, it kind of got me, it got me thinking, um, you know, seeing the, these uh, sort of sexless bodies got me thinking if we were thinking here more about gender than about disability and immigration uh i think we could we could we could see something cool here in the in a more sci-fi realm or in an alien movie i i love the fact that these aliens are basically like a frankenstein's monster of sex organs that have just been like cobbled together and yet are like completely desexualized like these aliens are like nipples, boobs, and butts everywhere. Like if you look at this thing, like their elbows, their joints look like boobs and like kind of mammary-ish. They've got these like head nipples. They've got like booties on the back of their heads. I mean, Mac, I'm not going to say that he was dummy thick, but I will say like... Mac had a little bit of a booty. Like he had a shapely little bum in a way that is like, I think clocks as cute, like kind of like a baby bum kind of situation. But these aliens, if you look at them, these are sex organs that have been like compiled together with these giant eyes and these weird little butthole mouths. I don't know if we want to go in this direction, but I... I wondered some of that, you know, like you're you're reading these real human body parts into these alien costumes, and maybe it's just a coincidence. But I, I just I wondered, thinking thinking kind of deeper into that, is this sort of reinforcing that idea that these are not actually otherworldly so much as they are people from another place, and just really right. sort of concretizing that that immigration trope that we know was actually intentional. 
um, we, did, right on. We, did hear, we did hear in the commentary that the, the primary focus in designing the aliens was to not rip off E.T. too closely. Yes, <laughs> I think that was the driving emphasis of this entire movie. This like, was, the, this was the mirror mantra. It was on all of their mirrors. Do not rip off E.T. too closely. <laughs> right. Close, but not too close. I think it's time for us then to get a little trivial. What's some trivia from this film that we discovered? So are there any repeat offenders in this film? And the only one that I, well, okay, let me take a step back. There were a ton of people that would go on to do some amazing things. They had big careers, um, but there isn't a really clear direct line to disability. I would say maybe one of the closest, one of the people involved was also involved in the film Mask, uh, which was a definitely a disability text. Uh, and the director, um, Stuart Raffle, also did a movie called Mannequin on the Move. Now, this is a movie about a woman who essentially is paralyzed by magic and she becomes a mannequin. Uh, I don't know if you would count that as a disability text. I would. She has no control of her body and because of magic. That's about the extent of it. We also, as we've done in previous episodes, like to talk a little bit about the equipment some equipment facts coming at you. Throughout the film, Eric, of course, is rocking a quality chair. He is in a quickie manual wheelchair, but the product placement isn't just about McDonald's and Coke, my friends, because also in this film, we see a t-shirt for quickie wheelchairs, as well as I'm pretty sure a hat. There's a red hat in his room. I believe it's a quickie hat. It may also be a MAGA hat. I'm not sure. I think it's a quickie hat. I don't think they had MAGA hats back in 1988. I don't know. I'm pretty sure Donald Trump was a Democrat still at that point. What about some production facts, Erica? Do we have any good production facts? Oh, we have a couple. Yeah, yeah. So um, we had some pretty heavy hitters working in the background on this production. And one of those was um, the music the the maker of the music do you remember the name of that person does it matter nah you can look it up it's easily available online but the uh the the individual responsible for the score for this film was also responsible for back to the future which i really want to give jeff full credit here because when we watched this film before we knew who this uh music person was jeff said is this the back to the future music so wow nailed it absolutely um, you might also find continuity into Predator or The Avengers because uh, our film ma uh, music maker for this film, um, the score guy, do we call him? Yeah, sure. Okay, the score guy also worked on these um, absolute um, real success films. I, I, do, I do have some questions. There were moments where the music had me feeling like I was actually watching E.T. So I think they, they may have forgotten to put the memo on his mirror. Uh, but um, yeah, yeah. There was some, some overlap for sure. <laughs> yes. Another fun one we had, our director is a, a, a known animal wrangler. So um, working on films, wrangling animals in a way that I wouldn't even understand what that meant were it not for two stellar animal wrangling scenes in Mac and Me. The first of which is a scene in which a pack of dogs, wild dogs, but not wild dogs, very much the like- neighborhood dogs. Yeah. Um, somehow, like 50 or so, would you say? 25? I don't know. There's a whole a bunch lot. of dogs. 
a lot of dogs are out uh, chasing Mac as he uh, is he soapboxing? Yeah, he's in an electric car. He's in like a like one of those like Jeep electric Jeep car things. So we have the the uh, the the dog chase scene, and then a very very gratuitous wild horses scene. <laughs> at the end. <laughs> like we are in a desert, sure. Why is there a VW camper van uh, hurtling through the desert, followed by a pack of horses? I don't have an answer for you. Because nothing says the free spirit mm-hmm. of the American West like a VW van. Mm. <laughs> Well, that explains the horses. <laughs> I'm 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 so curious about what that was all about. So curious. Honestly, I think it, I mean, maybe you're onto something there. Maybe someone says, but wait, it's a Volkswagen. Uh, <laughs> we need some horses. Or maybe the animal wrangler was like, guys, guys, can we just put some horses though? I got all these horses. Let's do something with all these horses. I know a guy. I rode a horse. <laughs> So there's obviously a lot of product placement in this film. If E.T. is all about, you know, Reese's Pieces, this film is all about Coke and McDonald's. McDonald's, of course, having a strong partnership with Coke. Uh, There's a temporary use of Skittles. Skittles is temporarily in the film. It just like appears for the first half. And then it's like they forgot about it. And we're just like, well, there are more Skittles in this film. Now, all of this is put off it's explained or justified by this charity angle the argument made by many of the people involved in this film is that all of these things were necessary evils because it was all about the money let's raise some money for a really good cause now i am going to question this motive deeply and seriously I think there are numerous instances throughout this film where if the object was to talk about Ronald McDonald House or the Ronald McDonald Charity, why was it never addressed in any way? Why was there never any press to tell people why it was a good charity, why they should donate to it? Like, there was no actual appeal within the movie, which is probably not a bad thing. It would have broken the movie a little bit. I agree. But I feel like this whole like Ronald McDonald charity explanation doesn't seem to really surface until after the movie bombs. Like the movie is a bomb and everyone's critiquing how product placement it is. And then suddenly you have this narrative of, oh, well, the producer always wanted to make a movie about the disabled person. And oh, he really liked the Ronald McDonald charity which has nothing to do with him working as an advertiser for Ronald McDonald, of course. Uh, It has nothing to do with, you know, the director in the commentary literally says that they were trying to see how they could push the envelope of product placement in this film. They were like, "How, how far can we go with placements before the audience is turned off? And the answer is they went too far. They went way too far. It was literally described as being crass. And so I wonder if charity is being used here to sanitize the like monstrous invasion of capital within this film and the ways in which they don't try to make a movie, they tried to make a commercial, which also maybe explains why this movie that had a multi-million dollar budget was filmed in like six weeks. 
because the story actually didn't have anything to do with it. This is just purely a vehicle to like sell McDonald's, to sell Coke, to sell whatever other product they could place in it. And then it didn't work. And now there's this sort of revisionist history. Oof. Well, as usual, you have done your research and you have used that research. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just saying, but this is, this is the part of the podcast where we get sued. Um, but I do find it a little, a little sus. It's a little sussy. I don't disagree with you. I think this, 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 uh, you know, I mean, it's potentially an answer to like, why didn't we get a Ronald McDonald house scene? Why didn't we get there? If this is what this was about. Absolutely. Surely someone would have known to tug at the heartstrings if you're trying to get the cash. Like this was, you know, our telethons were well-established at this point. Oh yeah. Like Jerry Lewis was rolling in it by 1988. Yeah. In fact, several years after this film, I would make my uh, appearance as a poster child <laughs> for muscle dystrophy. So, I mean, I guess this is why we, uh, we have our rating system, because at the end of it all, sometimes it looks like a draw. Yep. It's hard to know. And that is why, like good social scientists and humanities professors, we turn to a statistical method in order to unearth <laughs> the reality of a film tongue firmly placed in cheek. So here at Invalid Culture, we have developed a scale in order to measure our movies. It is based on four primary questions, marking our movies on a scale of one to five, five generally being the worst. The idea being the higher a movie scores, the worse the movie was. So let's dive in. Question number one, on a scale of one to five, with five being the least accurate, how accurate does this film portray disability? I gave it a one. I think it was pretty accurate. I gave it a one too. It was shockingly accurate. Okay, question number two. On a scale of one to five, with five being the hardest, how hard was it for you to get through this film? Uh, Okay, I'm giving this one a three, because I'm going to be honest with you, it was reasonably hard. I'm going to one-up you. I gave it a four. I found it actually quite difficult to get through this movie. I feel like I was bored. It was pretty difficult. I don't know that I would have soldiered through this if I was a child. I think I might have bailed. Well, see, that's where I think my my nostalgia, the nostalgia factor made it made it easier to endure because I think that this is actually much more tolerable for a child who cannot see the glaring problems with this film. (laughs) Okay, on a scale of one to five, with five being the maximum, how often did you laugh at things that were not intended to be funny? You know what? I gave it a three. I'm rethinking that three. I think it should be higher, but I'm just going to stick with my original rating and call it a three. I laughed a reasonable bit at things that were not supposed to be funny. I also put this as a strong three. I think it's a solid three for me as well. I definitely did not laugh at most of the things that I was supposed to laugh at. I definitely laughed a lot at like the dance sequence and not in a good way, I would argue. It was pretty unintentionally funny. And last but certainly not least, perhaps the most important, on a scale of one to five, with five being the most, How many steps back has this film put disabled people? 
So I, I, I gave this a two and I just want to qualify and say that like the film on its own, I uh, only gave it a one. Like it is, a, it is, this is by, by a landslide, the fairest, most accurate disability representation in my view that we have seen so far. Um, but I'm giving it an extra point here because I don't know this whole like made a film for charity purposes. I just I feel like there's something a little icky behind that. So that's where my two came from. I was like I I, I struggled with this one, but I thought about it and I realized, particularly as we looked at the reviews of this film, no one addresses disability when talking about this film. No one even see that like, the wheelchair is like not a thing. And so I think it may be a film that put filmmaking back a century. However, I think disability by and large got out scot-free on this one. I think we emerged unscathed as a people. And so for that reason, I am going to give it a one. So if we take all of our scores and we tally them together and we place them into our scale, we see that this film has not a terrible score. This film comes in at a regrets. I have a few, which is our second best possible rating for a film. I honestly thought that it was going to squeeze in under this might be an underappreciated piece of art. But, you know, having having watched the film now a couple of times, I uh, I think I, it would feel wrong if it fit that category. Yeah, I don't think it's art, I, even if the even if the disability representation is strong. Yeah, I just I cringe at the idea of this film being used for anything in the world. Yeah, well, there it is. I mean, filmmakers, movie buffs, bring it on. I hope that we will. It is my absolute goal. This podcast will not stop, I dare say, until we see, until we see a low enough ranking film that we can call it an underappreciated piece of art. And goal number two, that we are able to finance Mac and Me 2, the sequel. Oh yeah, also that for sure. You know, I think uh, I think as soon as we shut down here today, I am going to go uh, start that GoFundMe up and uh, I think all we'd have to do is get Paul Rudd's attention and this can happen. And so ends another episode of Invalid Culture. Are you enjoying your time with us? Do you have a good time listening? Well, why don't you tell your friends? Tell them to check it out. Maybe go on to Apple Music or wherever it is you find your podcasts. Give us a like, give us a comment that would be greatly appreciated. But maybe even more important, do you know of an amazingly terrible disability film that you would like to hear us talk about? Go over to our website, invalidculture.com, submit it to us. We would love to hear. So, so long, and we will see you on the other side.